Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. We're here with Dr. Dennis Hagiolatis from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Hagiolatis is the Paul F. Heron Jr. Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care, where he's also the Program Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center. He's joined us today to follow up on his recent newsletter issue on screening patients with cystic fibrosis to prevent colorectal cancers. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and GECUSA Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe strategies for colorectal cancer screening in patients with CF prior to lung transplant, and describe strategies for colorectal cancer screening in patients with CF after lung transplant. Dr. Hagiolatis has indicated that he has no financial interests or relationships with any commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of his presentation. He has also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Hagiolatis, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed the recent literature investigating the increased risk of colorectal cancer among patients with cystic fibrosis, the challenges in developing the new colorectal screening guidance, and identifying the patients who might benefit most from screening. Our focus today is on how that information can impact clinical practice. Uh, so if you would please, Dr. Hagiolatis, start us out with a patient scenario. I'm going to give you a hypothetical case today. This is a 45-year-old male with cystic fibrosis, pancreatic insufficiency. He has severe lung dysfunction with an FEV1 of approximately 25%. At this point, he is referred for lung transplantation. He has never been screened for colorectal cancer. He has moderate malnutrition. BMI is about 18.2. He also has CF-related diabetes. However, his carbon dioxide is normal, and he only uses approximately one liter of oxygen per day on routine basis. So here's a patient referred for lung transplantation who's never been screened for colorectal cancer. Should he be screened now? Yes, this patient has limited survival without transplant. However, his survival with transplant is closer to 10 years because transplant survival for cystic fibrosis has improved to a significant extent, and it changes the way that we expect him to survive if he gets a lung transplant. At this point, the age-appropriate screening for cystic fibrosis patients is 40 years. He's 45. We require patients that undergo transplantation to have age-appropriate screening for all the things that can be prevented. So therefore, he should be screened prior to listing for lung transplantation. It is also not appropriate to try and transplant somebody if they have an active cancer. How should this patient be screened? The recommendations from the guidelines suggest that colonoscopy is the correct mode of screening for multiple reasons. It is the only procedure that has any data available in patients with cystic fibrosis at this time. In addition to that, if something is found, it can actually be taken care of, meaning a polyp or two have been found that are small enough that can be removed at the same time. So this is, you know, the preferred mode of screening. However, if you have somebody that has end-stage disease, it is possible 
that this procedure is considered too high risk. At that point, the transplant team and the GI team that are involved in the patient's care and also the cystic fibrosis team, they can use other modalities to possibly screen this patient. Those are not recommended because we do not have enough information, but it is a matter of just collecting enough information to make sure that this patient can undergo transplantation safely. Things that might be used include FIT testing, which is an immunohistochemical stool screening test, or CT colonoscopy, which can provide an X-ray image of the colon and give us some confidence that there's no cancer there. Finally, what we can say is that for uh, patients that are really low risk and are critically ill, the procedure can be foregone and be done after transplantation if the teams involved in the care of the patient feel that this is the appropriate way to go. Example is somebody that has no family history of colon cancer and they're barely 40 years old, they've never had any trouble, and you have to decide on transplant because they are critically ill on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. If patients are on ECMO support and they cannot undergo any procedure, in cases like that, then screening can happen after the transplant procedure. Uh, Doctor, let me give you a what-if question. What if this patient is considered not to be a colonoscopy candidate for any reason? Maybe he's evidence poor adherence. Maybe he's got a Burkholderia infection. Maybe he's just not willing to undergo the procedure. What would you do in that case? In this case, survival that we estimate for the patient changes. A patient with his characteristics will have survival that's closer to five or seven years, but unlikely to be long-term. Therefore, screening for something that might happen in the future does not make as much sense. And in this case, discussions should be made with the patient and the family whether they want to proceed with this. However, from a prevention perspective, it does not make much sense to pursue colorectal cancer screening for this patient. In addition, the procedure is a, has some risk on somebody with end-stage lung disease, and therefore, the risks might outweigh the potential benefits. So our main recommendation is not you know, to proceed with screening. However, the patient's preferences and the healthcare team's preferences should be taken into account. Now, let me continue with a different what if. What if this patient is screened and is found to have a precancerous polyp, let's say maybe it's 10 millimeters, and then the patient undergoes transplant? How would that change your decision making? So if the patient has a completely removed polyp, will be okay to undergo a transplant from that perspective. However, the patient has to have a follow-up procedure to make sure that there's no new polyps that are forming after transplantation. This procedure should happen within three years after the original colonoscopy. It should occur after recovery from transplant, as what we are doing here is trying to find things that might lead to problems in the future, rather than fixing problems that are important immediately at the time of transplant. And we have to take into account how well they're recovering so that we can project the transplant survival and make sure that it's good enough to make cleaning an appropriate procedure. And to that extent, what I'm going to say is that patients with CF that have survived three months after lung transplantation, they don't have a median survival of approximately 10 years. So usually we know pretty early on where things are going with this patient and we can make decisions about surveillance at this point. All decisions should be made in conjunction with the patient, the endoscopist, and the healthcare team. So like every screening decision should involve the patients and their family's preferences, the healthcare team as far as you know the risk and benefit of the procedure, and the endoscopist who would be performing the procedure. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll continue with Dr. Dennis Hagiolatis from the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. 
If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, please go to our website, ecysticfibrosisreview.org. And if you're interested in additional cystic fibrosis programs, please visit cf.dkbmed.com. Welcome back to this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Dennis Hagiolatis from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania about colorectal cancer screening for patients with CF before lung transplant. What about screening patients after transplant? Uh, start us out with that patient scenario, if you would, please, doctor. This time around, we have a 33-year-old female patient who has undergone transplant three months ago. Transplant was uncomplicated. There was no primary graft dysfunction of the lungs, no significant infections. There was a minimal acute rejection episode at six weeks, which was treated with oral steroid burst, and the repeat bronchoscopy was negative for rejection. The patient has mild CF-related diabetes, preserved weight at this point, and overall, she's doing very well. All right, so we've got a patient who's been transplanted and is doing very well. When should this patient be screened for colorectal cancer? This patient's survival is very good. So once they've survived three months without any major complications, we expect that they might have a median survival of 10 years. And based on the characteristics we have so far, this might be the median, but they might have even better than a 10-year survival. Therefore, at this point, it makes sense to start thinking about screening for colorectal cancer. After transplant, patients have an increased risk of colorectal cancer. However, the risk does not happen instantaneously. It takes a little time on immunosuppression to lead to formation of polyps. Therefore, we suggested on the guidelines that patients like our patient in the case should be screened within the first two years after transplant and after they have recovered appropriately from the long operation. Therefore, you know, the timing could be any time from now until the two-year mark post-transplant in order to be able to catch any polyp formation early. Uh, again, let me pose a what if. So what if this patient is found to have a number of 10 millimeter polyps? Uh, let's say there's three of them and they get removed during screening. What's the next step after that removal? This patient has now a higher risk of developing colorectal cancer by the fact that they have three polyps, even though they were very small and they were completely removed, and those polyps are not going to cause problems in the future. The whole history suggests that this person has a propensity to develop more issues with colorectal cancer. Therefore, right now, the patient needs further surveillance. If you have a positive colonoscopy, this is called surveillance because the next step is not to screen again, but to survey them and make sure you know that there's no issues. This colonoscopy should be performed in three years. If the endoscopist feels that for some reason those polyps have very high risk features or there are many, many more than three, they can sometimes recommend a shorter interval. So, and, and again, what if? What if that follow-up colonoscopy turns out to be negative? This would be excellent news for the patient because it immediately suggests that our prediction of this person being at higher risk than the average post-transplant patient did not pan out. 
she actually now has a normal colonoscopy. Therefore, at this point, we do not need to do further surveillance. We go back to rescreening. And screening is every five years based on a risk that's slightly lower from the previous, you know, situation. So therefore, the next procedure should be five years from the last colonoscopy, and it should follow that schedule as long as the procedures continue to be negative, meaning every five-year colonoscopy. Uh, One more what if, doctor. What if the patient is, uh, let's say, three months post-transplant and now has a serious infection with mycobacterium abscessus? She's had a couple of minor rejection episodes, and she's developed renal problems and is currently on intermittent hemodialysis. What would your next steps be for a patient in this situation? This is a different situation that you're giving me here. So this patient, unfortunately, has not had a good recovery. Mycobacterium abscessus is a very difficult infection to treat. At the same time, the patient is rejecting their lungs, and therefore they need more immunosuppression, which makes the infection more difficult to treat. And in addition to that, they've had some kidney problems, and now they're on hemodialysis. So what we talked about before was somebody that at three months post-transplant had a very good survival, median survival of 10 years, and probably longer than that since they were coming along very well. This person, even though they made it to three months, they're probably much more likely to be on the shorter end of that time period because they have many difficult problems to treat at the same time. So the question that comes up is, is screening for colorectal cancer going to help the patient prolong their life or improve their quality of life by finding something that might create problems in the future? And the spirit of the guidelines is that, you know, we should not do procedures on patients unless we feel that they would benefit from them. And we think in this case, this person should not actually undergo the colonoscopy procedure until there is further recovery. If in the near future, where the patient comes off dialysis, the infection is under control, there's not a lot of rejection, then the criteria that we set and were discussed in the previous case will be met in this case too. So at that point, you know, they can undergo the colonoscopy within the two-year screening period. At this time, however, this is not an appropriate procedure. One thing that we have to take into account with the post-transplant procedure is to make sure that the CF center and the transplant center have very close collaboration. Occasionally, the procedures that are needed might be forgotten because the transplant center might not be aware of the need of special screening for patients with CF for colorectal cancer. So good communication between the transplant center and the cystic fibrosis center is essential in this case so that we can identify and treat potentially preventable causes of morbidity and mortality for our patients. This is a very precious resource. It's a procedure that can change the lives of patients. So anything that we can do to prevent things that might lead to problems would be very appropriate and should be very carefully looked upon. Thank you for bringing us today's cases and discussion, doctor. I'd like to shift our focus now to talk about the 2018 CF colorectal cancer screening consensus recommendations. Uh, you were the lead author. What were the biggest challenges in developing those recommendations? There's a few things that we can think of and we struggle with as we were preparing those guidelines for our group of patients. One of the important things that was noted is that the preparation for cystic fibrosis patients, the colonoscopy preparation, tends to be onerous. It's longer. It has more laxative solution or cleansing solution to try and clean up their stool from the colon. Part of the reason is because the stool of patients with CF tends to be very sticky and very hard, so it's difficult to clear. So while for a patient that does not have cystic fibrosis, colonoscopy prep might be difficult but not too bad, it might be something that is more difficult for our patients to take. In addition to that, our patients need to eat a lot and maintain their calories. And many of the patients are diabetic, who makes things more difficult when you're trying to maintain your blood sugars, not go too high or too low while you're doing the preparation. 
So this is something that might be an issue, but we'll, we'll figure it out as we go along. We'll find out from centers and patients what they think about the preparation or how difficult it is. To that extent, a second issue that we have potentially identified, and I have seen it a little bit in my own practice, people that are inexperienced in screening patients for cystic fibrosis, they might not follow preparations that are needed or they might not know about it. And as a result, sometimes we have poor preparations and then the patient undergoes a procedure without having a fully clear colon. Because the procedure is not good enough, many times the recommendation is that you need a repeat you know, procedure within a year. So this adds to the burden of things that the patients have to do, and it adds cost you know, to the procedure, it adds risk. So this is something that needs to be monitored in the future to make sure that we are doing the appropriate thing and we're not having patients having multiple procedures frequently for colorectal cancer screening. On the other hand, we came up with those guidelines based on the fact that patients with CF have increased risk of colorectal cancer. However, the data that we have is not strong enough to tell us if there are some patients that are at much higher risk than others and if there are patients that are at lower risk than others. We do know transplant affects this issue, so that's why there's different guidelines for patients that have undergone a transplant. But for example, in real life, we know that males have a slightly higher risk of colon cancer than females. The risk is not different enough to change the age of screening between males and females, but we need to explore this in patients with CF. Is there a difference related to gender? Another you know, aspect would be, is there a difference related to whether you are pancreatic insufficient or not? Is there a difference based on your mutations? Is there a difference based on the presence or absence of diabetes or meconium ileus in childhood? As we have more extensive screening progress and more patients come through this, this will be very, very important questions to ask. And maybe we can find some patients that are higher risk, but more importantly, patients that are at lower risk. Why is finding lower risk patients more important? In the previous section, we're discussing how onerous the preparation can be and how difficult it is to get appropriate preps and appropriate colonoscopies. If we can find a way to make the screening a little less intense for some patients without missing potentially problematic colonic polyps, that would be a great thing that we could do for our patients. On the same wavelength, another aspect that we do not have enough information is non-invasive testing. I think earlier in the podcast, we caught about the possibility of using fit testing when there's nothing else available for somebody that's critically ill. The truth of the matter, fit testing has not been used at all or validated in patients with cystic fibrosis. So we do not know what the performance characteristics of the tests are. In addition to that, a test that is non-invasive, but if it is utilized in a population that's high risk, it might not provide enough confidence in somebody having a low risk of cancer and therefore still might lead to the need of colonoscopy. However, if we test it appropriately, we might be able to find some lower risk groups that can benefit from non-invasive testing rather than requiring everybody to undergo colonoscopy. So this is something that we need to explore and figure out in the near future as we are doing more and more procedures. Do you see anything else in the near future that might lessen the burden of colonoscopy in patients with CF? One of the more significant things that's coming down the pike in the care of cystic fibrosis patients is the approval of CFTR modifiers. CFTR modifiers are now available for approximately 40 to 45% of our patients, and they might be available with even better effect in approximately 80 to 85% in about a year or a year and a half. So why is that important? Well, that was going to be my question, doctor. Why is CFTR modulation so important? CFTR modifiers are important because they change the underlying problem of cystic fibrosis. Based on what we know from the data that's available, CFTR dysfunction 
might be one of the reasons why these patients have a higher risk of colorectal cancer. So by restoring some of the CFTR function, is that going to change the colorectal cancer occurrence in patients with CF? We do not know that, but the problem that we're facing right now might be less of a problem for the next few generations. So we're all looking forward to studying that and finding out the information. Thank you for sharing your insights, doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaways in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, colorectal cancer screening prior to lung transplant. What are the most important things clinicians should be aware of? So first of all, if a patient has severe disease and they have limited survival, the survival after lung transplant has to be taken into account when making decisions on whether to screen the patient. And we discussed that in our cases. The second point to be made, if there is no transplant options, the limited survival has to be taken into account when discussing the possibility of screening the patient. And the third point that we made is that surveillance and screening are different. Screening is done in negative cases every five years, but surveillance is done in three years or less if needed if there are positive findings. And our second learning objective, the strategies for colorectal cancer screening after lung transplant. One of the most important points to make on this one is that screening should happen only after good recovery has occurred. This is a procedure that's done to find things that might lead to morbidity and mortality afterwards. So we have first to ensure that the patient has recovered well before we try to prevent things. To that extent, we should avoid screening patients that appear to have poor post-transplant outcome, since it's not going to make a difference in their quality of life or their survival. The third point, again, is to make sure that the intervals for surveillance and screening are different. Surveillance is done within three years or a little less if we find some positive findings, and screening is done every five years. The final point to be made here is the fact that the colorectal cancer risk does not increase instantaneously the moment you receive a transplant. It takes a little time to lead to problems. Therefore, we chose the two-year interval after transplant for a screening procedure for a transplant patient for two reasons. One is to ensure good recovery of the patient post-transplant and also to have enough time to be able to see the effects of transplant immunosuppression on colorectal polyp formation. So if a patient is at a younger age that they would have needed screening if they had not received a transplant, do not need to be screened immediately post-transplant, but it can be done within two years after transplant. Dr. Dennis Hagiolatis from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Bob, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eCysticFibrosisReview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eCystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. 
The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and GEC USA Incorporated. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.